0: Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check
1: out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. All right. Welcome back to the Ciders. I'm Chris the Chimanchu, and I'm joined tonight by our wonderful producer, Dr. Andrew Zhang. Do you want to say hi?
2: Yeah. Hey, y'all. Super excited for this episode tonight.
1: And our guest tonight is Dr. Dale Lee to discuss celiac disease. But first, let's remind you about the show as we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast, where we interview leading experts in the fields that bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine.
2: Tonight we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Dale Lee. He's a member of the Pediatric Gastroenterology and Hepatology program at Seattle Children's Hospital. He grew up in Oregon, but left the Pacific Northwest for many years before returning to Seattle. He earned a medical doctorate at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School and pediatric training at the Children's Medical Center of Dallas. Dr. Lee completed dual fellowship training in pediatric gastroenterology and also nutrition at the Children's Hospital of of Philadelphia. He also obtained a master's degree in clinical epidemiology from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Lee is a co-chair of the Seattle Children's Nutrition Committee and the director of the Celiac Disease Program. He has done some consulting work for Takeda Pharmaceuticals and Cypher Medicine, but these were not relevant in our discussion today. In this episode, Dale teaches us when to screen for celiac, the ins and outs of a gluten-free diet, and the four pillars of celiac follow-up.
1: Before we get into the discussion, I have a haiku that was generated by AI.
2: A child's
1: child's body aches. A gluten-free diet will heal their pain and their woes.
2: I'm clapping. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's, yeah, that's great.
1: (laughs) All right, so we have a fantastic episode today. We have Dr. Dale Lee. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show.
0: Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to chat with you guys. (laughs)
1: Well, because we're sort of a, you know, informal group, you know, we, we're, we're we're consulting you here. We're, we're,
0: we're curbsiding
1: by the crib for you, (laughs) for our crib siders. I, that came out weird, but anyhow, is it okay if we call you by your first name? Please, that would be great. All right, Dale. So we're going to do some, just sort of getting to know you questions, just sort of break the ice to get to know you a little better.
0: First, could you just give us a a little brief bio on, on who you are, describe yourself and let our audience know who you are? Absolutely. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist with additional formal training in in nutrition. And uh, my areas of expertise are celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, pediatric nutrition. I have a five-year-old son at home. My wife is a pediatric dentist. So um, we do a lot of discussion about nutrition and teeth and stuff like that in my household. And my my kid, interestingly, wants to be involved with every cooking process in the kitchen. So it's fun, cute, (laughs) and highly disruptive. (laughs)
1: <laughs> any uh any fun recipes lately that uh that your kids been uh really into
0: you know we we really try to um encourage an, a decent amount of protein intake as opposed to all carbs so he's really into french toast these days and he will not eat eggs outside of french toast but um with french toast he'll take he'll enjoy it the trick is to let him make the fancy topping so Today, for example, he got to crush up some graham crackers, put a touch of maple syrup on it. He thought it was the greatest thing when he got to spread that on his French toast. That in sounds mine.
2: gourmet. It's also uh, the hardest age to
0: it's, it's tasty. <laughs>
2: have them eat the different proteins <laughs> and veggies. So kudos to you. Our next question, I think, is uh, let's do the best advice you've ever received as a learner or now in your career.
0: I think some really great advice, um, and it's maybe life perspective that I got was that like uh, learning is an ongoing process. And for me, I've always been like a person who thinks about, all right, I'm going to complete this and then get to the next step. And um, as a as a trainee, I was like, I'm going to become a pediatrician. And then after that, I said, I'm going to become a pediatric gastroenterologist. And then I did a nutrition fellowship, and I was like, I'm going to become a nutrition expert. And um, it's been really cool along the way to see that it, um, it's great to, to learn things and gain expertise, but at the end of the day, when you learn a lot, you realize how much more there is to learn. So I've taken the stance that um, it's okay never to get to the place of being a complete expert on something, but um, learning enough to know um, what there is to continue to learn and continue to develop those relationships with people that are, that are really excellent and know more than you. So I thought that was some great advice that I've gotten from some of my uh, more uh, senior colleagues. Excellent.
1: I love that advice. I'm going to veer a little bit from medicine for my question. Do you have anything within pop culture you want to share with our audience whether it's a book, a album, a TV show, anything that you you think people really need to check out?
0: Oh, that's good. So, my son as I mentioned is really into cooking. And um it's weird cuz like we're not the best chefs in my household. My wife's way better than me, but my son is really into um the Food Network and I'm not sure. Angela, you're probably too busy to watch TV, but we watch the Food Network fairly regularly. And um, there's this show called Beat Bobby Flay. (laughs) And it's really fun. So there's like this chef that comes on. There's two chefs that come on. They battle each other. Um, And then whoever wins gets to go against Bobby Flay. And he's one of these like celebrity chefs, like an original Iron Chef. And um, it's super fun to watch. And you get to learn like some cool recipes and skills. And um, my son liked this um, show so much, we were shopping and he saw the Beat Bobby Flay <laughs> cookbook. So we oh. have purchased the Beat Bobby Flay cookbook in our house. And he'll like leaf through it sometimes and be like, hey, can you make me this? And it's usually much too advanced for my skill set, but we can like make things that are similar. So, so I'll say Beat Bobby Flay is, um, is definitely a recommendation for me. And as physicians, I'm not sure about you guys, but like I didn't grow up cooking a lot like when I was in training and stuff, I was busy. So it was what's quick and easy. So I'm starting to learn now that cooking is one of the the most amazing gifts that you can give to people. If you can cook them delicious, nutritious food, um, it's really meaningful. So I'm actually working on my cooking skills more these days.
1: Nice, nice. You know, Justin Burke, he's not on the episode because he had some other commitments, but... uh... He got married uh, about a year or so ago, and uh, our my present to him for his wedding was uh, a book called How to Cook Everything by Mark Bittman. Mm-hmm. It's like one of my favorite cooking books. We got that as a wedding present when I got married, and it pretty much like breaks down like really easy recipes and then how to build upon it. It really shows you how, like, how to cook everything, so um, something you can think about if you're looking at good cookbooks, too, as you're developing your culinary skills.
0: Oh, I like that, Rick. Thank you. I'm uh, actually reading a Mark Bittman book right now, and it's essentially about the history of food and like how colonialism and throughout history and how agriculture has changed the foods that we consume. And like going through medical training, you guys have gone through training, we don't learn about the history of food. We don't learn about how politics and how agriculture has changed the things that we eat and our nutrient profile and potentially disease risks. So, I've actually made it an effort to read more like popular books about food and, and history because I think there's a lot for us as physicians to learn um, from these these sorts of books. So Mark Bittman, one of my favorites. Nice.
1: You know, as you do your uh, food history, there's a great YouTube channel called Tasting History with Max Miller. Hmm. And I bet you he's got an episode on the history of, of French toast. He'll actually pick like an old, old recipe. He will talk about how he developed the recipe and to modernize it to so you could cook it like with modern day ingredients. And then right in the middle, he'll like do a deep dive into like the full history of sort of the food or the culture and then finish off the recipe and taste it for people. So I bet you, you would sort of enjoy that.
0: I love that, Rick. Thank you.
1: All right. I think we talked a lot, huh? Probably too much. But I right, food, food, food's the topic, right? Angela, should we dive into our first case?
2: Yeah, let's do it. All right. And we will definitely be coming back to food later. So don't you worry? Great. so the case would be at the Catholic Children's Urgent Care. So you're working at the at the urgent care and you go to see a nine year old patient, uh, Tatiana G who is on contact precautions for abdominal pain and diarrhea. When you take a history, the parents tell you that they've been having diarrhea for almost a month. They can't really seem to find any specific dietary triggers. You know, she's not febrile during these times. The pain is pretty diffuse and nonspecific. The biggest thing is when you review their growth chart, you notice that Tatiana has really fallen off their growth curve in the last few months. So like we were kind of talking about earlier, it was honestly kind of hard to write this case because it feels like almost anything could be celiac. So. We'd love to talk about, you know, what kinds of symptoms clue you wanna think about celiac. In this case, do you commonly see these symptoms, this age group?
0: Yeah, it's a great case description. And I think um, one thing that I like to really, to highlight with celiac disease is um, it is a disease that has such a wide spectrum of presentation. And people say like syphilis is like the great mimicker. I think of celiac very similar. It can present in such a diffuse sort of array. In this case, we're talking about celiac disease. It could be celiac disease, clearly, but my mind, first and foremost, I'd be thinking of, is this sort of a, sort of an intercurrent infectious process? The red flag of falling off the growth charts makes me think of, is this like profound malnutrition? Is there some sort of a underlying mucosal inflammatory process, like Crohn's inflammatory bowel disease, celiac? I think those are all on the table. With celiac, sort of the, the classic traditional presentation is young children, like age two, three, four, They've got the distended bellies, very, very thin extremities, and they have diarrhea. So like a clear malabsorptive picture. But that's sort of the traditional description. Now the more common presentation sort of statistically is people that have like these non-traditional symptoms, like maybe abdominal pain. Maybe they will have constipation. Maybe they will have difficulty focusing. Or maybe they'll just have sort of like mild abdominal discomfort that they may be ignoring. So the spectrum for celiac is huge, and it goes to the extent of, like, neurological symptoms, like rash-like symptoms, and, of course, the growth piece is one thing um, as, as a GI doctor that we think is definitely a high-risk uh, indicator for celiac disease.
1: Now, uh, you, you sort of said traditionally we think about sort of these younger kids. You know, what is the age range that we see? Will, will we be diagnosing kids all the way into their adulthood, possibly, or is there, is there bimodal or- or trimodal pattern, or do we just see it like throughout throughout life?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you cannot develop celiac disease until you've had gluten introduced into the diet. So, in the United States or in most countries, like after age six months, like a year of age is when you'd pick it up. <clears throat> there's a bimodal distribution with a celiac presenting like age t- eight to 10, and then another peak like in like the early 30s to 40s. So, there's a bimodal distribution. And... In kids, I think it's a little easier to diagnose in kids in some senses, guys, because it's on the minds of pediatricians. And um, also we have that growth piece. So like significant changes um, from the weight growth curve, height growth curve, those are things that would clue us in. If you're an adult and you're having like diffuse abdominal discomfort, a little diarrhea, a little constipation, joint achiness, it could easily be put off as IBS or it could easily be put off as like maybe it's like some sort of a connective tissue thing causing joint pain. So, I think there's a lot of reasons in the adult population people, A, ignore it or just don't take it sort of as something high on their differential diagnosis. And a lot of adults, they don't know to complain about this. So, they're like, I'm just, this something I'm dealing with. So, it absolutely occurs in pediatrics and we, I hope we pick it up well, but it's it's something important in adults as well.
2: You kind of talked about how it could be really a lot of different symptoms like fatigue or even rashes and so would it be fair to say that maybe the biggest unifying thing is that if somebody is falling off their growth curve that's when you really think about it or do you test in celiac with a lower threshold than that
0: yeah really good question angela so i i tell people i think the threshold should be super low if you have a child with unclear symptoms Um, and maybe it's not the first thing that's part of your workup, but if there's something unclear and you can't figure out what's going on, it's probably a wise move to send a celiac screen, and a celiac screen, as you know, it's blood work, so it's a total IgA, and then a tissue transglutaminase IgA is screening, so the threshold should be very low. It's a simple blood test, in my opinion, and again, you could have somebody falling off the growth curve. They're starting to present sort of more profoundly at that point in time, and hopefully we can intervene as soon as possible, and do a workup. But sometimes you don't see them in your clinic until you've seen like this plateauing effect on the growth curve. So um, my suggestion is have it in the back of your mind. It should be a common general pediatric sort of differential diagnosis to hold. And um, if you're not making sense of something, you should definitely screen for it. I've recently seen a kid, um, a patient in my clinic, and he presented with like these migraines that we couldn't figure out. So diagnosed with celiac disease based upon migraines. And We hope that he'll have improvement, but clearly you can have concurrent um, migraine and celiac. The other piece that is maddening for many people is there is an asymptomatic categorization of celiac disease. So, at least 10% of people diagnosed with celiac are asymptomatic. So for example, it would be a child diagnosed based upon symptoms, has like endoscopy proven celiac. And then the recommendation is for all first-degree relatives to be checked. Some moms and dads are like, I don't know if I want to be checked because I might be positive, but this is important to know. And some people who don't convey that they have any symptoms, they will test positive for celiac disease. And this is very difficult for people to decide, okay, I feel totally fine, but on labs and then follow-up endoscopy biopsy, I have have inflammation in my GI tract. What am I going to do? Should I go gluten-free or should I just try to ignore this? It's a hard discussion to have.
1: I'm going to roll back a little bit because we started talking about like testing and treatment. I really want to finish off some of these basics here. So my last question about sort of symptoms and presentations, are there any like major red flags that we, it sounds like the growth curve is one of the big things, but are there other things that you're like, you see this and this is like, this really needs to put celiac disease really, really high in your differential?
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. So with celiac, you don't have blood in the stool. With celiac, I think... That's a hard question for me because a lot of the symptoms are a bit more soft and nuanced. So I think if you're falling off the growth chart um, or you're having frequent bone fractures, I would for sure go ahead and send a screen for celiac. But I would say the threshold should be as equally low for somebody with persistent belly pain or persistent loose stools, things like that. So I think the threshold should be low uh, despite the absence of like red flag falling off the growth curve kind of symptoms.
2: Well, the next question I wanted to ask is, you know, I feel like part of this is really interesting because there's been this huge surge in in awareness about gluten and so many people are gluten-free and some people will say I'm allergic or I think I have celiac or I have celiac. So before we go any further, can we talk about what celiac actually is? Like, is there a difference between celiac and gluten sensitivity, wheat allergy? It sounds like a much more systemic condition. So we would love to hear your thoughts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say first and foremost, the symptom presentation for celiac, gluten sensitivity and wheat allergy can be almost identical. So symptoms are not enough to make the distinction here. So for celiac disease, this is an immune-mediated enteropathy. So if you consume wheat gluten, it causes an immunological reaction in the GI tract, and it causes inflammation specifically that you can pick up in the GI tract if you do an endoscopy and biopsies. So there's, yes, a GI-centric element of celiac disease, but there's also well-known extra-intestinal manifestations, be it neurological, cutaneous, joint, for example. So that's with celiac disease, immune-mediated process triggered by gluten. With non-celiac wheat sensitivity or gluten sensitivity, the, the nomenclature is a little bit tricky, and I'll just say wheat or gluten sensitivity. With this process, you may feel unwell and have overt symptoms with the consumption of wheat or gluten, But there's no objective inflammatory process going on here. So um, if you were to check screening labs, you would not see abnormalities. If at the end of the day you were to do an endoscopy biopsies, you would not see the um, objective changes in the small bowel. So sensitivity, um, very similar symptoms, but no overt inflammation or damage to the GI tract. And then with a wheat allergy, this is a different sort of immunological mechanism, but similar to celiac disease, so there's a response to gluten, but with a wheat allergy or a gluten allergy, you don't see damage to the GI tract mucosa, so a slightly different pathogenesis here.
1: So one question I have about that is, I think recently I've been hearing more and more from some GI specialists about gluten sensitivity and people because looking at things that are like FODMAP, so... Some people are saying that maybe fructans tans are causing a lot of these symptoms, which are also found in the same foods that we have, that we see gluten and that we just don't have good testing for this. And so that's why people are having the same symptoms with gluten, but we just aren't being able to like really fully figure out like what their issue is. Can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah, totally. So um, this idea with FODMAP. So this is the idea that there are certain uh, carbohydrates, dietary substances um, that are poorly digested. And they cause sort of an osmotic effect and they cause bloating, gaseous symptoms within the GI tract. And this is a real phenomenon. So if you, for anybody, if you overwhelm your body with the consumption of a certain amount of a disaccharide, for example, you will be able to surpass your body's ability to break down certain things and you can induce intolerance to things. So there's absolutely the possibility, for example, if with a large amount of uh, fructan consumption or, for example, Uh, garlic or onion consumption that you overwhelm your body's ability to to digest and fully um, absorb these things, and you can cause this symptomatology. So um, it could be the case, and this is, I think, important because if you're malabsorbing something and you have an osmotic effect and you have a gaseous sort of a presentation, that's very different than there being inflammation in the GI tract, that causing malabsorption and thus causing symptoms. So two very different pathogenesis, but you can definitely see that the symptoms could be exactly the same.
2: Adding to the mystery. <laughs> I'm trying to like work through that. and.
0: <laughs> adding to the mystery, yes. <laughs> no. Yeah, so I think it's tough. So if somebody comes in with these symptoms, it's totally easy to say like, man, you're like malabsorbing something, like just change your diet. But if it's celiac disease, I think it, it takes it to another level because if you have ongoing inflammation in your GI tract, um, there's a significant sort of comorbidities and risks associated with ongoing active celiac disease mm. beyond the symptoms
2: it sounds like it's important to treat celiac for the symptoms, you know, if somebody is having them, but for the asymptomatic people that you're screening for, why is it, you know, I think it's hard to convince somebody that it's important to adhere to like, a, you know, the treatment that we can discuss later.
0: Totally agree. Like if you say my body feels totally fine, and you've found this condition, like, is it worth it for me to pull out gluten? Because I love pizza, for example. So The the risks that are associated with ongoing active celiac, I think, should convince somebody. So if you have ongoing active celiac disease, there's inflammation in your GI tract here. So for a kid, this is going to affect their ability to absorb nutrients, potentially ability to grow. It's going to affect bone mineralization potentially. So you can get increased risk of fractures. If you have ongoing active inflammation in your GI tract, this puts you at greater risk for small bowel uh, cancers as well. Your baseline risk of small bowel inf- lymphoma, for example, is tiny, tiny, but it increases multifold if you have ongoing active celiac disease. And then one kicker that's a bit hard to quantify is increased risk of other autoimmune conditions. There's been some nice studies that show if you have ongoing active celiac because you don't treat it with a gluten-free diet, you will be at higher risk of developing other autoimmune conditions. For example, type 1 diabetes, Autoimmune hepatitis, autoimmune thyroid disease. So, this is sort of increased risk of developing things that may really impact your lifestyle. For example, if you develop type one diabetes and have to take insulin, for example.
2: All right, I think I got ahead of myself. <laughs> um, I actually wanted to ask what you talk about screening for celiac, diagnosing it, and you've touched on the blood work and the scoping. So, let's get a bit more into the weeds of diagnosing it. Um, you said you know TTG and a total IgA and. There's also these other antibodies that I heard of, like anti endomysial or um, gliadin IgA. So yeah, if we could talk about after we refer somebody to a GI doctor, you know, how do you diagnose someone?
0: Yeah, so truly, it's the 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 pediatrician who's usually going to be the first line at screening and picking up these kids. The, the majority of children that I see in my clinic have had a screening TTG IgA or screening testing, and it's positive. So My job is much easier because it's a pediatrician whose acute um, assessment of the situation and screening helps identify the likelihood of celiac disease. So there's a lot of different antibody tests that you can use. And TTG IgA um, is by far and away the the best predictor of risk of likelihood of having celiac disease. So people discuss like a 95% sensitivity, specificity for TTG IgA. Importantly, if your IgA level is low, then you cannot use the ttg IgA based testing, so then you'd be going to some form of IGG-based testing. So that would be the deaminated gliden peptide or DGP-IGG, and we'd also consider using the TTG-IGG. An important disclaimer, a DGP-IGG, TTG-IGG are not as good at predicting likelihood of celiac disease, so if somebody comes to me with a normal IgA, a normal TTG IgA, but has an elevation in one of those IgG-based parameters, I'm going to say you can ignore those IgG-based parameters because your IgA is sufficient and your TTG IgA is in the normal range. So it, TTG IgA, by far and away, the, the best screener. anti Antiglidin antibodies are unfortunately not very sensitive or specific. So um, if you have an elevation in one of those, it's high likelihood that it's a false positivity. And then anti endomysial antibody, this is an important one to talk about. So uh, this is a send-out test. Most hospitals don't do this in-house. so It's usually a send-out test. And I don't use it as an initial screening test. So there are um, certain standards, and in particular, our European GI colleagues have developed standards where you can use only blood work to make the formal diagnosis of celiac disease. So this is the serological diagnosis of celiac disease. And with the European standards, you can make this diagnosis if the first round of screening shows TTG IgA titer greater than 10 times the upper limit of normal, and then a second set of blood work showing the anti-endomysial IgA being positive. So by those criteria, you could make the serological diagnosis of celiac disease, and you'd follow the course with the implementation of gluten-free diet. You'd follow TTG IgA titer as well as symptoms. Important caveat here, United States doctors, we're not fully in agreement with the European approach at this point in time, I'm part of some groups where we are trying to better form statements based upon north american um, sort of joint consensus and the data suggests that you're very likely going to make the correct diagnosis using the serological criteria but i think an important thought is if you make the wrong diagnosis for somebody you are potentially putting somebody on a lifelong gluten-free diet and this has large implication for sort of dynamics for the family um, sort of socialization for the child so in our opinion, very important to make the correct diagnosis, but I will say I absolutely do use the serological diagnoses in certain situations after some joint decision-making and shared decision-making with families.
1: So your recommendation, say, I'm, I'm, I'm the general pediatrician consulting you or curbsiding you and just saying, hey, I'm worried about this kid. What should I send out? I should send a TTG IgA, a total IgA, mm-hmm. and maybe, and then, start, and then start from there? Is that, is that your best recommendation for us?
0: Exactly, exactly. And if the total IgA comes back low, which is pretty uncommon, um, I'd follow that up with IgG-based testing. And then at, at the end of the day, if you have some level of concern because of the specific symptom presentation, growth presentation, there are certain situations where you have seronegative celiac disease. So if you are worried at the end of the day, you'd say, let's talk with a GI doctor, and go towards an endoscopy with biopsies.
2: And um, I think with the endoscopy, I've heard that it's really important for the patient to be on gluten when they do it. Is there anything else they need to consider by the time they get to you?
0: Yeah, really important point you bring up, Angela. So so if you treat celiac disease by going on a gluten-free diet, and then you scope somebody at some later interval in time, you can have 100% complete mucosal healing. So you'd have no idea that they have celiac disease. So to make the correct diagnosis, a wheat has to be in the system. So a common misconception is that, oh, this child's uh, TTG-IGA came back positive. I'm going to tell the family to go gluten-free. Go see the GI doctor to have some further discussion. And we say, actually, no, please don't have them go off of gluten quite yet because we need to have the discussion about should it be a serological diagnosis we pursue? Should it be endoscopy with biopsy? And uh, in my clinic, one thing we learned was it was taking people, like, months to get into clinic to see us. And if that's the case of kids having diarrhea, abdominal pain, and having significant problems focusing, for example, I'd hate to say, keep gluten in the system until you wait to see me. So we were able to work with our team, and uh, we were fortunate enough to have the the bandwidth and resources. So we say, "We'll, we'll get you in within two weeks if you have a concerning TTG, IgA, so... Um, I have a team of uh, practitioners that I work with, and we will overbook our lunch schedules, etc. Uh, we don't want these kids having ongoing poor symptoms um, as we try to make a diagnosis. If you pull out gluten, sometimes the diagnosis becomes murky. And if you have a murky diagnosis, you don't want to accidentally make the incorrect diagnosis and have a kid pull off of gluten. It's, it's a big deal to come off of gluten. People will say, it's just it's just a dietary choice, but... If you ever try to go rigorously gluten-free to the level of being concerned about cross-contact and you try to eat out, um, you would understand this is a big deal for families and children in particular. Yeah.
1: So it sounds like we just should try to reach out to our local PEDS gastroenterologists and see you know, what they might recommend if we're like, hey, I, I have a pretty good idea. This one might be celiac. How soon can you get us in? And if not, what would our next steps be?
0: Totally, totally. I would say if if you have a kid that's concerning reach out to your GI doc and they, they we get it. Like you got to keep gluten in the system to try to get the right diagnosis. And it should be on us to say, let's try to get you in sooner so that the child doesn't have to have ongoing symptoms. It makes everybody's life easier if gluten's still in the right. system. And the
2: last thing we want to talk about before we move on to the management and actually diving into the gluten-free diet is um, given that celiac is an autoimmune disease really, and how it correlates with other diseases. So I think about at our hospital, when a kid is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, they get this automatic screening for thyroid and for celiac, actually. So if I have a kid who does have I elevated, or elevated TTG, IgA, and a normal IgA, then are there other diseases I should be thinking about, nutritional things I should be thinking about um, screening at that time?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that the type 1 diabetes piece is really important, and we're actually doing some research with this. So <clears throat> oftentimes kids who are newly diagnosed with type 1, um, there's a screening for um, celiac disease, and TTG IgA is elevated. So one important thing that we have discussed is there's a high likelihood, higher likelihood of false positive TTG IgA in the setting of new diagnosis type 1. We think it may be related to just kind of an autoimmune storm process generally. So if a child has no symptoms of celiac that are concerning and they screen positive at that initial type 1 diagnosis, We'll say, feel free to refer them to us as a GI doc, but also feel comfortable trending this out over like every, every, every couple months when you see them in your endocrine clinic and see which way things go. Because for some kids, the TTG IgA will normalize. If their TTG IgA is super sky high, our study suggested you're more likely to develop, you would more likely to have a positive celiac diagnosis at the end of the day, but many people will be marginally elevated. When I think about celiac and sort of what screening, I'd recommend right off the bat. So we check blood counts to make sure that's in the normal range. um, And there's not evidence of iron deficiency, which can occur with celiac. We check a 25 hydroxy vitamin D level. And in Seattle, where me and Angela live, like the majority of us are kind of deficient. But the thought is if you have celiac, you'd be more likely to malabsorb uh, vitamin D. And um, we check liver enzymes and we don't oftentimes do a diffuse sort of uh, a vitamin level check. And at the end of the day with celiac disease, once you make the diagnosis, um, things should improve as you go on a gluten-free diet. So I don't even do a DEXA scan to check bone mineral density at baseline. If there are issues ongoing, if there's poorly controlled celiac disease or it's it's not looking like it's going in the right direction with ongoing active symptoms, poor growth, a lab elevation, then I'd consider a DEXA scan. But... um, with celiac disease, the nice thing is you will see mucosal healing over time, and um, the the issues, the nutrient deficiencies that you initially had, they will improve.
1: Now, is there a fam- like does family history matter here? Like, do we see autoimmune diseases in other family members, or do we have other family members who say? Oh, you know, I actually have some gluten intolerance already, or well-known gluten intolerance. Will we see some of this in some of these patients?
0: Yeah, Chris. I mean, this is a big deal. So, um, family history is a strong risk factor for celiac disease. So, um, we say there's somewhere between a five to eleven percent chance of having celiac disease if you have a first-degree relative with celiac disease. So, at least one in twenty. So, for a family that presents with some autoimmune history, be it type one diabetes, thyroid celiac, um, we definitely have increased thoughts about, okay, this child's at higher risk for having celiac. And if you have somebody that presents with a known biopsy-proven family history of celiac, that kind of puts them into a different category. And when I have dialogues about the shared decision-making of the serological diagnostic approach, that's another piece that enters my decision-making. If the family member has celiac and this child it really looks like they have celiac, maybe we could bypass the endoscopy if sort of the other criteria are, are well substantiated.
2: All right, should we get to the management of celiac? This
0: is the this is the fun part.
2: <laughs> yeah, what everyone's are waiting for. Uh so, <laughs> the gluten-free diet. Uh like we said it seems a little easier to adhere to now that there's more options everywhere, but still seems pretty hard. So, you know, can you talk about what exactly is gluten, what foods contain gluten, the general principles of a celiac gluten-free diet?
0: Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so, A gluten-free diet is something a lot of people know about, and a lot of people talk about gluten minimization. My wife likes to minimize gluten. She says it makes her feel better. But a rigorous gluten-free diet is what's required for somebody who has celiac disease. So a gluten-free food is uh, formally defined as having less than 20 parts per million of gluten in it. So it's a concentration-based or density-based criteria. So if you have celiac disease, you have to avoid all gluten, which is a protein found in wheat, barley, and rye, And the thing that makes gluten super useful and super delicious is it gives sort of this soft elasticity to your bread and grain products. So, for example, if you bite into a a warm slice of pizza, like the crust is going to be good and and, and nice and like have a little give to it. Or like a warm croissant, for example, it has that nice spongy texture and it's great. And if you try to make a gluten-free product that's analogous, you will lose some of these properties. And uh, gluten-free pasta, for example, it doesn't need to have that bite. So gluten-free pasta has a little bit more al dente dente feel, but it's very similar. It tastes good, but bread products are more challenging to replace. And if you're on a rigorous gluten-free diet, yes, you're going to be including only gluten-free foods, um, but you take it to another level, and uh, people will talk about cross-contamination. And we're trying to socialize the concept of a cross-contact because to talk to a kid about your food being cross-contaminated, sometimes uh, a fear, fear-inducing. So if your food's cross-contacted with wheat gluten, that's a problem as well. So if you have a jar of peanut butter at your home and you put your, your knife in there and you smear your peanut butter on your regular bread, um, and then you go back in for, for a smear number two, um, you have cross-contacted your peanut butter, and that would be a problem to use that same jar of peanut butter for somebody who has celiac disease. If you're in a restaurant and they, are, they have a gluten-free pizza option, If it is the case that they are throwing things in the air and there is a flour, a wheat flour in the air, you're cross-contacting that preparation space. If you're at Chipotle and you are getting your burrito, for example, and you are um, asking for a gluten-free burrito bowl, um, it's likely the case that the items that people are putting onto your gluten-free burrito bowl have been cross-contacted because the ladle or the spoon is likely going to be touching the flour tortilla. So you by all means can eat gluten-free at many establishments, but it it takes it to another level when you think about cross-contact and the importance of minimizing even that level of exposure. And and I always tell families, this is a rigorous gluten-free diet, but the balance is, is we want to be careful not to induce disordered eating, like anxiety and fear in kids in particular. So you've got to balance it and say, it's going to be okay if you get cross-contacted, but um, it is important to learn these principles and we'll help you get there. And it's okay if you're not perfect right off the bat.
1: So that sort of goes into my next question. So obviously, majority of our patients are children probably in school. And as you and many of our listeners know, many kids get lunches at school and breakfast at school and um, because their families can't afford it otherwise. How do you approach these sort of situations? How do you talk to parents? How do we interface with maybe the school system to try to figure out how to get them a gluten-free diet. Do you have any suggestions on how on how to do that management?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Chris. This is a hard thing for families that depend on school. A lot of families that need to be gluten-free, one of sort of the things that gives them comfort is being able to control the environment within their home. And then if your child goes out to a restaurant, a friend's house, even grandma, grandpa's house, it can be pretty stressful for families. And when you think about school, school should be the one place where you also feel safe, like a safe learning environment. But at the end of the day, schools are manda- publicly funded schools are mandated to be able to provide gluten-free food to a child that needs it. But sometimes the space just is not set up for that. So we've had kids who like are given like a banana and like a prepackaged little salad every day for lunch, and that's not a good lunch for a kid. So having a dialogue with the school is really important, and. The dialogue with the school should go something like this. My child has celiac disease and this is a medical condition and uh, we'd like to set up a 504 plan so that the school by law realizes that they have to support this child. And then having a dialogue specifically with the school cafeteria, the food services group saying, I have a child with these specific needs. Can we think of some ways to be able to get good food that's safe and is not cross-contacted with celiac? And usually schools are wonderful and willing to collaborate but they oftentimes have blind spots. They're like, "Oh yeah, we can do this," and they don't realize that the prep space has been um, cross-contacted with gluten particles. So it's about sort of giving the schools some grace, but also pushing them to say, "Guys, this is mandated by law, and you can do it. Other schools can do this."
2: I'm just thinking about how difficult it must be to eat out at a restaurant, and the like the you know that there are gluten-free options in the menu, but yeah, you don't really know what they're doing in the kitchen.
0: It is tricky. It is tricky. And for these families, I think this idea of like, you've got to be able to trust people if you're going to trust that they're taking care of your child's health and and really doing the right things as they're preparing food. So this is not an easy thing to do. And at the end of the day, like having a small amount of gluten cross contact, for some people, it causes overt severe symptoms. But for some people, it, it doesn't cause any symptoms The concern would be ongoing frequent overt exposures over time causing active inflammation in the GI tract. And we have more studies that need to be done to understand sort of what's the risk of a tiny bit of cross contact over time. So my colleagues at Mass General Hospital are doing a celiac follow-up biopsy study where they're doing sort of regular biopsies at like the 12 to 16 month mark after diagnosis. So this is gonna teach us a little bit more about sort of what's the risk of small amounts of exposure, what's the sort of rate of mucosal healing. It's going to be important for us to understand because at the end of the day, um, kids, you want to support them to grow and to thrive. And if you are overly restrictive and not supporting them well, this is not good for their growth and development. At The same time, if they're too lax, um, they will develop potential medical um, uh, risks associated with active celiac.
2: I I want to get to the, you know, how you measure a response to a diet and how, quote unquote, strict do you need to be? Before we move on to that, you know, you talked about gluten and things like croissants or bread. But I don't think I had really a croissant until I was in school and met other kids that weren't uh, Chinese and then demanded that my parents buy it from Costco. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I didn't really grow up with a lot of bread products until I was school age. So for those families who have like cultural diets that are not as bread based, do you Mm -hmm. have specific counseling pearls that you found useful for them or barriers in terms of acquiring gluten free versions of their staples?
0: Yeah. I have a question for you, Angela. Did you grow up eating, having soy sauce?
2: Yeah, I did.
0: <laughs> so the, the crazy thing about gluten is how it's hidden in so many things. So soy sauce, like standard soy sauce has gluten. Mm. That's one thing. If you look at like, so I, I once looked at the popsicle ingredient list in our hospital and this popsicles had gluten in them for, all, for, all, for, for no reason. I guess maybe for texture or for some binding capacity, but gluten is hidden in so many things. And um, gluten is cross-contacted very frequently in oat products. Um, But I think one of the most common sources of gluten is in these more processed food products, like cakes, candies, crackers, and things like that. When we give families counseling about the gluten-free diet, I think it's really important to understand sort of the cultural sort of backdrop to what we're asking them to do. And um, I think... When I help to manage a patient who has celiac disease, I tell families, like, my job as a doctor is really important, but just as important or more important is to work closely with a dietitian who's knowledgeable, um, making sure that we can support a child in making this transition to something sustainable and easy to maintain. So I'll say that maybe I don't have the best pearls, but the one pearl would be to say you need to work closely with a dietitian, somebody who you can trust and um, can partner with the family over time, and importantly, it's not a one-time touch-and-go thing. It's like, a, okay, we need to be following this family over time. In my opinion, one of the most profound interventions that we as doctors make to a child's upbringing and their growth and development is dietary exclusion. And we totally kind of forget about doing that because for a kid not to be able to eat like wheat or eggs or milk, that's a really big deal and really impactful to them. So in my opinion, really important to coordinate and to collaborate with a dietitian.
2: So um, you kind of talked about, you know, not being able to be quote unquote, perfect in a diet, a gluten free diet with cross content and all of that. Um, and I'm curious to how you measure the response to that, you know, so let's say you see so Tatiana back in your clinic, and either she feels better, or she doesn't feel better. Like, how do you know if it's working? Uh, are there serologic markers that you're drawing? You know, are you rescoping people? What does that look like?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Angela. It's a, it's a combination of those things, and I tell people, like, sometimes you may not see any response for weeks or months. Um, in particular, like, the weight gain growth piece, sometimes those take a while to improve, but uh, some people feel immediately well once they in, remove gluten from their system. So, like, overt symptoms like abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrheal stools, those may improve very rapidly. When I talk to my patients, I talk about the four pillars of monitoring celiac disease. So pillar number one is symptoms. So it's the symptoms that you presented with and also the symptoms of like weight and linear growth. So that's pillar number one. Pillar number two is changes in the TTG IgA titer over time. And as a full disclaimer, TTG IgA is not perfect. So um, for some people, you may have complete normalization of TTG IgA. But if you do a repeat scope, you could have ongoing active disease. So I think a lot of times we fall into the pattern of saying, let's just follow the TTG IgA, and we kind of hang our hats on that. But that's only part of the picture here. So, pillar number two, uh, lab serological following. And then, uh, pillar number three is a dietitian assessment. So, I tell my families that it's really important, regardless of how you're feeling and what your labs are looking like, that you have to follow with a dietitian regularly. And the dietitian is going to go over your diet and the food that you've been consuming. And they will be able to kind of parse through and give, make sense of if there might be some gluten accidentally sneaking into the system, be it with ingredients or with cross-contact. So uh, pillar number three is really important, and it's the human element of a, a dietitian evaluation. Pillar number four is optional at this point in time, and that's the repeat assessment via endoscopy to make sure things are healing. So in kids, I've scoped kids as quickly as three months after um, the celiac diagnosis, Usually it's because they have eosinophilic esophagitis concurrently, so I'm doing a repeat scope after an EOE evaluation or intervention. And I've found that there's been mucosal healing of the small bowel within three months. But in general, for folks that are doing a repeat endoscopy, and in adults it's standard to repeat endoscopy, it's done like 12 to 18 months after the diagnosis and intervening with a gluten-free diet. For some people, if you have ongoing active symptoms or elevated TTG IgA that just will not normalize, the scope is important, part of sort of figuring out what might be going on if there's a concurrent process. But um, if you're doing pillar number one, if your symptoms are in good control, weight and growth are excellent, if labs are normalized, and the dietitian assessment suggests that things are going very well, then I don't routinely do a repeat endoscopy for people. But uh, that's the, the approach that I'll use.
1: You get the feeling that maybe things aren't going so well. You had sort of mentioned before that you know a lot of some some of these nutritional deficiencies will resolve and you don't have to worry so much about them, are there other testing that you may start adding? I think you said vitamin D. That are, are there anything else that we have to worry about? We have to worry about other fat-soluble vitamins or anything else?
0: Yeah, I mean, we don't check for all of the fat-soluble vitamins usually because our, our Western diet is so replete in the majority of these vitamins. But um, my sort of annual screening for people who have celiac disease is a CBC, which is kind of a surrogate of of iron status. We check a 25-hydroxy-D level. We check thyroid function as well. If a child's just not growing very well and there's a concern that there could be other deficiencies, we may broaden the nutritional approach, but not in a standard fashion.
2: And then is it possible for, I mean, I know that celiac is really a response to the gluten. Is it at all possible for a patient not to get better on a gluten-free diet? When I was out there reading some of the research for this episode, I saw mention of it and well, it just seems like that would really suck. But um, yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts.
0: Yeah, there's an entity called refractory celiac disease, and it really is super uncommon, rare in pediatrics. So this is a condition where you have celiac disease and you intervene with a gluten-free diet in a rigorous form and fashion, and you don't have improvement. This is thought to be in an adults a primary immunological, like clonal T cell kind of mediated process. So it's a different immunological sort of a process than conventional celiac disease. So um, it does not respond to the gluten free diet, and it, it's almost a misnomer to call it celiac disease because it's such a different process. Though it is likely triggered by wheat gluten. So
1: this sort of rare disease, we probably should we should probably thinking be thinking more of. You know, continued cross-contamination or some and sort of chase up that tree instead of going that, that, that way. Is that something you would suggest?
0: Yeah, exactly, Chris. So, I mean, I would think about is there intentional versus unintentional gluten exposure? Might it be the case that the child has like an infection like helicobacter pylori gastritis, duodenitis, can present with TTG, IgA, similar symptoms. Or we've had kids who we thought it was celiac disease. And at the end of the day, we're like, hmm, this is weird, not improving and oh, wow, they have elevated inflammatory markers, their growth is poor, and we do a repeat scope, oftentimes we consider upper and lower endoscopy, and it's like Crohn's disease, for example. So if you're not getting better, then you really need to think through, like, what's going on, and it could be as simple as active ongoing gluten exposure, but it could be a different process altogether.
1: Are you often adding H. pylori testing in your scopes?
0: Um, So whenever I do an endoscopy, so my standard endoscopic approach is I'll go down to the duodenum and we'll get at least six specimens from the duodenum, four from the second to third portion and at least two from the bulb, which is the very first portion of the duodenum. And celiac is patchy in distribution, so it may be present in some areas and not present in others. I will always do gastric biopsies as well when I do my celiac evaluation. And when you do gastric biopsies, you can actually see H. pylori organisms there under the microscope. And sort of visually, it looks like a sort of a nodular appearance in the antrum. And I actually always do uh, esophageal biopsies as well. We did a study that we published a few years ago, and we, and we asked the question, what is the marginal utility of doing gastric and esophageal biopsies in the setting of a celiac disease evaluation? So like a child presenting with TTG-IGA elevation, you're worried about celiac. We found that like we picked up some eosinophilic esophagitis that we would not have picked up otherwise. We've actually picked up H. pylori in one case, so again, there's probably some benefit to doing a a more sort of extensive endoscopic evaluation while under anesthesia. But uh, again, I think uh, you don't want to do more than you have to do. But if a child's under anesthesia and you have this opportunity, it's really like adding on like 60 seconds per region of biopsy. So it's not quite a a big lift to do.
2: But the primary pediatrician could add something like the H. pylori, like antigen testing if you had the travel or family history.
0: Potentially, yes, yes. So, um, there are GI guidelines about how H. pylori should be diagnosed endoscopically, but by all means, I think in a practical sense, like if a child's having clear symptoms, and maybe even like a family member who has H. pylori, doing stool-based test, antigen testing, or the breath, urease breath test would be something. Yeah, to I was going to say,
1: we don't we do serology for H. pylori as much anymore, right?
0: <laughs> no, no, that's not good.
1: <laughs> so, I guess uh, before we talk about some take-home points, I really want to ask I like this question because it's sort of like a, it's more hopeful look at the future. So, like, what are there, are there ongoing studies or emerging treatments for celiac disease that may be relevant here? Are there medicines or supplements that are on the horizon that we can use? Or are there any, any actually supplements or, or medications we can use now?
0: It's a great question, Kristen. A lot of families will ask this question. And if you go on Amazon or you go to a health food store You can find enzymes that reportedly digest gluten. So um, I'll tell you right now, I think, unfortunately, um, to have something sort of pharmaceutical grade that can make sure that you stay healthy, it has to be studied much more rigorously than some of these enzyme supplements that are out there. So I would not recommend taking a uh, gluten-digesting supplement that's out there right now. But the the landscape of celiac disease is very promising. And the great thing about celiac disease is we can treat it well with a gluten-free diet. But the hard thing is, a gluten free diet is not easy to maintain. So, right now on the landscape, there are multiple medical drug therapeutics in, in the process of being studied, development as well as clinical trial for helping to support people who have CNA disease. So, some of the medications range from medications that are enzymes that degrade gluten to medications that alter your body's ability to absorb gluten to medications that bind gluten, keep them in the lumen of the GI tract so you don't absorb them. And it doesn 't interact with your immune system at all, and there are other medications that are trying to like um, really alter your immunological response altogether to gluten exposure. so there are many different mechanisms of action here in play, and the exciting thing is that there is incentive, and there are uh, pharma biotech companies developing these therapies, and there will be a huge, huge demand for these in my opinion because For people who have celiac disease, it's great to be able to operate on a gluten-free diet, but when you eat out at a restaurant, where you go to grandma's house and she's made you a delicious meal, you're like, I'm not sure if grandma understands what a strict gluten-free diet is. To be able to have a med that might allow you to have some freedom, at least during certain meals, would be great. And then for other people, for example, a child who's developed anorexia or disordered eating because of the rigors of gluten-free diet and anxiety, I like to be able to say, you have a medication option and you maybe don't have to avoid eating gluten at this juncture in time, but maybe you could go to that later. It, it'll be groundbreaking and life-changing. I think about many medical diseases. I think inflammatory bowel disease is a great example. It's a disease process where we choose, use medications to suppress your immune system, but there are also um, uh, dietary approaches that can work. In celiac, there's only one proven therapy at this juncture in time, but my prediction is within 5 to 10 years, there will be drugs that come to market that allow people to have some flexibility in how to treat celiac disease, and I think it will be extremely welcomed by our patient population, and extremely welcomed by anxious moms and dads who have kids uh, going to birthday parties as well.
2: Oh, well, I just think a lot of us are looking forward to that point in time. Um you've given us a lot to think about. I think to start wrapping up, out of everything we talked about, do you have any main take home points for our listeners as we, you know, integrate this into our practice?
0: I think main take home point, don't feel bad about getting a negative celiac screening serology. You're doing the right thing if you are thinking about celiac disease to send off that screening test absolutely the right thing to do. Um, and then the other piece is if it's taking a while for your patient to get in to see gastroenterology and you're thinking, should I just put them on a gluten-free diet? Um, please call your local GI doc and say, I have this patient and I'm worried about celiac. Is it possible to get them in sooner so we can keep them on gluten up until awesome. they see you?
1: Those were fantastic take-home points. I really love those. And I think our, our listeners will really appreciate the discussion we had today and hopefully come out with some some uh, some great learning from this. Before we say goodbye, do you have anything you want to plug? Are there any societies out there? Any like cool things that you think that uh, our listeners should check out websites or whatnot?
0: Well, I think um, in terms of the world of celiac disease, there's a society for the study of celiac disease, which is great. So if anybody wants to learn more about celiac disease research or be part of the celiac disease community, that would be awesome. And um, I think otherwise your dietitians, guys are going to be oftentimes much more knowledgeable about gluten-free things than us as, as physicians and other uh, healthcare practitioners. So I'd say uh, talk to your dietitians about sea lake disease and what resources they have, because uh, I've learned a tremendous amount from our dietitians. Excellent.
1: Well, thank you so much. We appreciate the time you spent with us tonight. Um, and
0: um, I think we'll just take it away from there. Thanks again. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the invite, guys. It was quite the pleasure. It was awesome. Thank you.
2: This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids! It sure is! Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com.
1: We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our show owner, Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.
2: I've been Angela Zhang.
1: And this has been Chris, the Chiu Manchu. And if you made it all the way to the end, um, I'm going to read a poem that was generated by AI on pediatric celiac disease. A child's body is a temple, a sacred place to be kept whole. But when gluten is consumed, the body's walls begin to break. The immune system attacks and inflammation takes its toll. The child may suffer pain and their health may start to fail. But there is hope, for there is a cure. A gluten-free diet can heal. With this change in diet, a child can live a healthy life.
2: Oh, (laughs) we at a good poem. (laughs) That sounded better in my head. (laughs) There are many producers that are good at puns, and I am unfortunately not one of them. That was my one and only attempt.
1: That's fine. It's still better than what I would have come up with. (laughs) See you guys later.
0: Bye.
2: Bye.
0: Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. BCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.